The cast of characters in the Formula One paddock is constantly changing. At almost every race, I see new people arriving and others moving on. But there are some constants, people who've seemingly always been there. A new Formula One season begins on the high belt at Kyle Army in South Africa. It's all changed for 1993. Alain Prost in pole position with Ayrton Senna alongside him on the front row. Michael Schumacher and Damon Hill, row two. Jean Lacy in the lead Ferrari with JJ Leto debuting the Sauber. There's Ricardo Petrosi and Mark Blundell in the lead. That rainy day in South Africa was Bayat Zender's first weekend working in Formula One. The 2022 Hungarian Grand Prix was his 538th race, and he's always worked for the same team. Bayat is in his 30th season with F1's Swiss squad. It now says Alfa Romeo on his uniform, but for years it said Sauber. We knew that we have to deliver, and Peter Sauber always motivated us and said, listen guys, you were fantastic, we were fantastic in Group C. Um, there is no reason why we can't be good in, in F1. Sensational bit of passing there by Kimi Raikkonen, the Finn in the Sauber. Kimi was exceptional and the way he looked at you, you had the feeling that if you give him a chance, he's taking it and, and he makes the best out of it. Charles Leclerc does finish in the points for the first time ever. Probably the most complete driver I've worked with in terms of natural talent. He's going to be a world champion. I'm Tom Clarkson, and Bayat's perspective is one of the most fascinating we've ever had on F1 Beyond the Grid. He began as a mechanic on Sauber Mercedes sports cars, driven by, among others, a young Michael Schumacher. When the team entered Formula One in 1993, it was tiny. It was legendary owner Peter Sauber, Bayat, and just 25 others, including the two drivers. It's grown to 520 people today, and as sporting director, Bayat oversees them all. He reveals so much in this interview, amazing insights into how an F1 team really works, and even why some drivers made it and some didn't. And he's got so many illuminating stories to tell. Sauber's astonishing debut season, a difficult, dark second year in 1994, partnerships with Mercedes, BMW and Red Bull. He was there when Charles Leclerc, Sebastian Vettel and Kimi Raikkonen made their F1 debuts with Sauber and he's helped the team win races on and off track. We started by talking about his route to a career in motorsport, which was very unusual. I was never interested in, in racing in motorsport at all before I joined Sauber. So it was pure coincidence that I met with Peter for an interview and, and after 10 minutes he said, um, no way, you're too young, you're unexperienced and, and the worst of all, you don't even have an interest in motorsport. And so he kicked me out from the interview and then um, three weeks later kept on bothering me. I called him again anyway and, and, then, and then he hired me just because he needed a mechanic. He desperately needed someone building a Group C car. At the time we had eight people in total um, eight FTE, so it was Peter Sauber, Leo Reis, um, a secretary, the chief mechanic and three other mechanics. And there was, and there was the ninth person um, who joined. And then we agreed on a one-year term. And quite soon it wasn't, especially the beginning of the time, it was not racing because I didn't go to races till, till the, the first two months. I never went to a Formula One race and, and never had the knowledge about racing at all. Um, but it was teamwork. 
and this was exceptional. We had like little beds in the company. We were half of the week we were sleeping in the company. Um, Mrs. Sauber Christiane she brought dinner often, regularly, uh, lunch and dinner. So we cleaned the, the the working places and she put a cover over on, on top of it and she she served some soup and spaghetti and and and. Literally, it was teamwork because you had to, with with a very limited amount of people, we had to maintain one car and to build another Group C car from from scratch. But I need to take you back. So this first interview that you had with Peter Sauber, you were what, 21? 21, yes. Was an and you had no interest in motorsport, you say. So why did you go to the interview, if I might ask? I was working as a, as a mechanic in Sulzer Wintertour, which was um, the producer of the biggest and, and the best engines, uh, diesel engines for ships, for big ships. So an engine would be like uh, 30 meters in height, um, 12 meter in length. And when, when I was just finished my, my um, education, the plan was that I, I go to work on, on these diesel engines for good and then travel with a group of engines because every, every set of engines had, had, um, had a guarantee engineer or a guarantee mechanic with, with it. And you traveled um, on a boat. If you were lucky, it was a luxury liner. If you were unlucky, it was a freighter. Um, so so you, you, you traveled with, with, the, with the set of engines for a year. And this was this was my goal. This was what I wanted to do. And then they stopped production in in Switzerland because they figured that it's quite quite a bit cheaper to build engines closer to a sea, and then just have a big crane and just put it in, into into the ships, then shipping it from Switzerland. And so I'm all all of a sudden my dream job was gone, and I didn't want to move to Korea because it would have been the next option, um, to Mokpo actually. <laughs> and um, I went to um, to go to work in the morning. By train. Normally, I went by by bike. I was a was an extreme biker. I went whatever weather. I went always by bike to to go to work. And so uh, one morning, my my tire was flat. I went by train. I had a local newspaper, which is like going through, and then I see PP Sabrechi is looking for race mechanic, and like like you have to be willing to travel the world. And I thought oh, this is what I want to do anyway with with the ships. And so I, I applied for a job. I called and said, listen, I'm, I'm interested. And I got an interview date immediately because I said he was desperately looking for a mechanic. And you had never watched a motor race? The only, the only thing which came to my mind concerning motor race was unfortunately the, the accident of Shil Wilner. And the ironic thing was that the driver he, he had contact with was then my, my very first Group C driver. What impact did Peter Sauper make on you? As a 21-year-old, oh, he's 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 a leader. I mean, you had <laughs> sauber. Sauber means um, clean in English, and so everything had to be clean. And he was very organized, very orderly. And the good thing was, I, I was it. I was it myself. I was um, an athlete. I was a biker. Um, I had my routines. I, I was training like like hell. And um, so it was a, it was a good match. But then Peter. At the beginning, he was he was working on the car. He was welding suspension. He was welding fuel rigs. So he was he was part of the team. And this changed then obviously um, quite soon after I joined because then we've been um, the official um, works team for Mercedes, Saab Mercedes in '88. And there was something impossibly glamorous about those Silver Arrow sports cars, wasn't there? Did you feel yeah, that? No, no, uh, not not at the beginning because the first year we had the AAEG. It was a blue car. And we painted it silver for, um, in '89, 
by then I knew a little bit about the history of, of Mercedes, about um, then, you know, going to Le Mans in '88. We we had to withdraw because we had um, we had the problem with the tires with our car. So um, one of, one of our cars, both rear tires exploded on the straight in training in practice session. So we withdrawn. And over the time, I, I, I learned about the history um, of sports car. I learned about the history of Mercedes, um, the tragic accident in the 50s, and the legacy of Mercedes as, as a silver arrow. And of course, part of that Mercedes sports car program was the Young Driver program. And I'm thinking Heinz Harold Frentz and Carl Wendlinger, Michael Schumacher. I guess you were a similar age to those guys at the time. Pretty much. Heinz is, um, I think, a year younger than me, Carl as well, and Michael three years. You know, it's it's. I've been asked quite often how how was Michael at the time, and uh, to be honest, I can't remember. <laughs> I can't. I, I remember. I remember some of the stories. Um, his very first Group C test in Paul Ricard, he crashed into into a, a Porsche, and then the Porsche driver came like pretty angry to Michael and said, "Why did you do it? You cut the corner." And and Michael said, "Me." No, 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 I, I didn't do it. But um, Michael's side of the car was pretty badly damaged, so and still he denied. No, but we had we had a very good we had a very good relationship. Sport was different then; it was more still professional, but more relaxed. And obviously, we only had like eight to ten races in in, in a season. What was at stake for those three guys? We had a clear plan um, about bringing them into Formula One. Right. All, Mercedes all, had this all, yeah, plan. Yeah, all, all three of them. And what happened to to Michael was pure luck um, that he got a ride in Jordan in 91 because of um, Gasho. Anyway, and, and for Heinz, the plan was that Heinz is going into Formula One with the with the cam- with the camel support, but then Michael had had the chance to drive for for Eddie Jordan, and then all the camel money went went from Heinz, from the planned money from from the Heinz project to Michael. That was the promotion to Formula One. But when they were just doing the sports car program, just tell me a little bit about their relationships. And I've, I've got to ask it: who who was quickest out of the three of them back then? Uh, I would say by talent, it was Heinz. Heinz by by natural talent, it was Heinz. Carl was was very quick as well, and then obviously the hardest work was Michael. He was he was the one who was um, he's just like he's living motorsport. Um, there was no other theme other than setup and and training and and he was he was completely focused. And Heinz departed in the middle of the season '91. Um, he went to Japan. Because he realized that that um, the F1 dream is probably further away than he thought or than, than it was planned. When we gave him another chance in '93 to test a Formula One car, and this was Peter Sauber's um, present to Heinz. Al- although he left in the middle of the season, we were not too happy about it. No, I mean, and, and then when Heinz, um, the first chance in, in a Formula One car, he was excellent. He was really quick. Is it a big disappointment to you that Michael never raced for Sauber in Formula One? No. No, I, I, th- I think, um, but uh, probably not a lot of people know that he tested once a Sauber. At Fiorano at in Fiorano, 97, yeah, he, yes, yeah, I've he seen tested, pictures. Um, because the Ferrari wasn't really up to speed and he wanted to have a comparison with, with, <laughs> the, Sau- with the Sauber car. No, um, no I, I don't think it's a disappointment. I think we, we are all um, very proud that we, we had you know, just a limited time together working on, on a project. Do you look back at that period with great fondness? 
Yeah, yeah, it was it was it were great times, really great times. And then you go to to Le Mans. Okay, when when Michael when when Michael and Carl drove in Le Mans, we had a little little disaster with with um, a bracket on the engine on both cars. I mean, my car, I was number one mechanic. My car was leading with with I think three and a half laps ahead of of the second runner and and. Um, on the other car, we had exactly the same problem. So a little bracket broke on the engine, and then the alternator belt would go off, and and the, um, the water pump wouldn't work anymore. We could repair it on on Michael's car, but we couldn't repair it on on Jean-Louis Lesser's car. The, there, the engine died on the straight. <laughs> when did you get the nod then that you were going Formula One racing? Um, this was actually in '91, and this is a little bit part of Sauber's history that um, big car manufacturers from Germany are leaving us um, from one day to to the next. The decision was taken, and it was a financial crisis in '91. Decision was taken by by Mercedes-Benz that they're not um, supporting us anymore. And that's why we hi- hired Harvey Postlethwaite, uh, Mike Gascoigne, um, to work on the project. The plan was to have a an inter in the a year without racing in 92 and then joined um, Formula 1 in 93. And the Mercedes withdrawn from all international sport activities. So the Group C program was um, was ended and they said we, we cannot commit to F1. And then it was up to Peter Saber to, to make a decision. What are we doing? And we had some other offers, ideas from... From Mercedes, like um, uh, like a little bit of an AMG project, so um, designing and, and pimping up road cars for Mercedes. But Peter Saber said that if we take the motorsport away from this team, it's like you take the, the ball away from a soccer team and it's not working anymore. So it was his decision to enter F1, which was a high-risk decision. On the other hand, later, um, through his good connections with the CEO at the time at Mercedes, and we got financial support, concept by Mercedes and power by Mercedes. How much pressure was there on the team as you went into '93? The good, the good thing on Peter was that he he has got very wide shoulders. No, he he's taken all the pressure. So for the team, we knew that we have we have to deliver. And and Peter always motivated us and said, "Listen, guys, you were fantastic. We were fantastic in Group C, and there is no reason why we can't be good in in F1." And everyone else already in the business, um, the old shots like um, Ron Dennis would say that, yeah, yeah, of course, yeah, Group C yeah, is not, it's not the same level. And it wasn't the same level. Um, so, but Peter took all the pressure and sometimes you could, you could feel it, you could see it on him. Quite often he was, especially beginning of 93, he was nervous, um, not sure where we're going to. And then, and then it went. It went out perfectly. I mean, the first. Oh year my was, goodness! The, the first year was end, um, end was of lap one. Yeah. In your first Grand Prix, <laughs> the Saubers were running fourth and fifth, weren't they? Yeah, and we could we could have been on the podium with Carl Wendlinger, and we had an electronic um, issue. We had to change an ECU on Carl's car, and we lost about three minutes or so. So he could have been on the podium. But you still finished fifth. We finished with fifth with, with JJ. This was exceptional. So we we had this. Hotel, a very nice hotel close to the circuit, and in the evening it was with Mario Ilian, Peter Sauber, and we organized a party, and it was it was going. Uh, we were very wild. And how many people were there in the team at this at this mm. moment? Because there were eight when you joined. What six years yeah. before? Yeah, um, the, the team size was about 150, but the team size, the the number of people traveled to the event was 27. 
um, 27, include, including drivers, including physio, team principal. So the whole team was 27, and we had three cars. Three cars and a spare chassis. Of course, the spare car was a yeah. thing back then, wasn't it? And, and you were chief mechanic on whose car? No, I was chief mechanic for both cars. Both cars. I, I was in 92. I was um, responsible for for the preparation of F1. So all the... Um, the, 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 the needed equipment um, like Gamozzi, for example, the, the, the car lifter. Um, obviously, in Group C, you had a little bit heavier cars. You had a different, different setting. You needed cranes to to lift it on high stands. In 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 um, Formula One, everything was a little bit different. So I was in '92. I visited eight races to see what what's needed in terms of equipment, list of trolleys. Um, but but, but at, at the time, backdrops were no backdrops. It was like like, like covers. The team achieved six points finishes in 93, in an era when points only went down to sixth place. It was a phenomenal first season. Was there a danger inside the team that you guys were thinking, this Formula One thing's quite easy? Um, no, it was, it was never a danger because we knew already from, from Group C, and Group C was, was, it wasn't Formula One, but it was sport, motorsport on, on a very high level. And we shall not forget that in, in the 90s, Group C was a little bit different than it, it, it is now, the, the, the VEC is now, because we had Nissan, Peugeot, Toyota, Porsche, Mercedes, Jaguar, Aston, Mazda. So we had, we had big car brands. The competition was very tense. And you had to you had to deliver, and you had to deliver in, in a professional manner. And so I, I don't think, just from, from the working approach, on, on the car as a mechanic, as a chief mechanic, it wasn't so much different. Formula One cars were, were much simpler than, <laughs> I, w- I would say Group C cars were, were much much more complicated because you had the lights, you had the wipers, you had flashers, whatever. No, it was, it was never, it was never um, a risk that we get, that we lose, that we lose ground. But never. the reward was Mercedes coming in as the actual engine supplier for 94. You'd lured them back in. Yeah. And uh, it was then there was powered by by Mercedes. It was yeah. it was Dylan Ilmore, obviously um, Mario Ilian. Did you feel that Mercedes were coming on board? And, and yeah, but 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 it didn't last. It didn't last very long. <laughs> no. Well, that's it. I mean, no, no. how um, much of a disappointment was very, it very, when they went to McLaren? Very. Um, it was it was a huge disappointment, especially for Peter Sauber, um, because of of the connection and and we brought Mercedes back into the sport into motorsport after Le Mans into international motorsport so basically it was us who who relived um, the silver arrow of course with, with the support of Mercedes um, no it was it was a huge disappointment and and especially for Peter and the time for us to react to find um, a new engine supplier was was very short Sauber and Bayat's debut season in Formula One exceeded expectations. The second year was more challenging. It was darkened by a severe crash for their driver Carl Wendlinger in Monaco. That was just two weeks after the tragic San Marino Grand Prix at Imola. Roland Ratzenberger and Ayrton Senna lost their lives, and JJ Leto, the driver who'd scored points for Sauber in their very first race, was caught up in a crash on the start line. That dreadful weekend shook Formula One and Bayat to the core. I was really about to give up. Um, I said, this is not my world. I cannot stand it. And, and because I, I knew Roland Rotzenberger from Group C, not very well, but, but I knew him as a driver from Group C. Then we had, we had the star crash with JJ and Pedro, I think it was. 
and several spectators injured. Then we had Ayrton, then the miscommunication or the wrong communication that, yeah, he's in the hospital, he's, but um, they can talk to him. And this was, this was just like, for me, it was too much. And, and then what, what the worst thing for me actually was um, the accident in the pit lane when I think it was a minority who lost the wheel and the wheel went like a bullet through, through mechanics. And no one would would think of stopping the race. So the um, ambulance, we didn't. They didn't let an ambulance in into the pit lane. So the, with with the stretcher, they they dragged one mechanic after the other to the medical center, and they wouldn't stop the race. And for me, it was this was just like not not real. Um, just because they are mechanics, we, we're not we're not stopping, we're not suspending the race, and and send send some ambulances in the pit lane. So for me, this was horror. Why did you continue? Uh, because Peter, <laughs> Peter, <laughs> Peter wouldn't give up. He, he's gone through different, uh, through other times um, in motorsport. You know, um, beginning in mid '60s, end of the '60s, and he said, you know, you know this was like, it's not an excuse or or an explanation, but it was just regular that the driver got killed every year, or at least one. And so he said, listen, this is part of of our world. It is a risky sport, and it's the first time you you, you experience something like this. Anyway, we had a long chat, and he kept me in in the motorsport. But Bayat, when Carl Wendlinger then has his horrific accident at Monaco, what were you thinking then? Uh, it was it was for me it was it was even more horror because at the time we had the the garages where we worked on the car were um, on a different place than than the pit lane. So for me, it was clear that I had to organize that Carl's car, and they had no had no idea um, about his status. That Carl's car is being brought into the pit lane and not into the garage, because if it was in the garage, um, there was no way to bring it to, to for the for the second practice session. So I was running, running to turn ten to the chicane, and when I arrived, I saw Carl um, laying next to the car and shaking, and and I had a chat with Sid. And I said, Sid, what, what, what's going on? And they said, yeah, it doesn't look good. And then he was transferred to first to the Monaco Hospital, then to Nice. And it was, it was a shock. It was a shock for the whole team. It was, it was completely surreal. We've been on Thursday evening. We packed up. We had to, uh, I was interviewed with the police for one and a half hours about um, how we maintained the car. And, and they confiscated the car for, for a couple of, of weeks until... until it was clear and we, we, we could prove it already on the day that it was just a little bit too late. A little bit, I think it was 27 meters too late on braking. No, it was, it, was, it, was very, it was very hard. And then the time after, because he was 19 days in, in hospital, un- unconscious, in coma. And for 19 days we didn't know whether he's going to survive or not. And this was um, because Carl was a very good friend. Or he's still a very good friend. No, it was, it was very tough. And can you remember how you felt when you, you got the news that he was out of the coma? Yes, and, and um, yeah, a big, big relief. And we've been, Urs Kuratli, the chief mechanic, and, and myself, next to Peter, we've been um, the first people to visit him. But this was like weeks, weeks, weeks later um, in Innsbruck. Then he was transferred to Innsbruck um, to emergency care. And then we've been the first people to visit him. And it was, it was a big relief seeing him. In, in one piece and in, in good mood because when we when we went up to the floor he was he was in we walked to his room and he came out of, of the room and he just walked us past walked past us because um, and then we said Jesus Christ he doesn't he doesn't remember us anymore because we knew that he had some um, when he woke up he thought that he's like eight years old 
going for the next kart race and then he was in, in half coma again and then the next time he woke up he thought he's going to be in Hockenheim for the Formula 3 race so he had like flashbacks and so when we first time we saw him um, he walked past and then we said Jesus Christ he can't he, he doesn't know who we are and then he turned around and said gotcha <laughs> <laughs> it's always tough especially if it is one of your driver who is who is um, involved in an accident um, but it's it's obviously you feel with with all the teams with 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 families if a driver is getting hurt. And you must have been at Paul Ricard in October when he got behind the wheel of yep. a Formula One car again. Yep. Was he straight back on it? I think the weather was wet. No, it, yeah, it, it was actually we had two tests. One was in Paul Ricard, and the next one was in in Barcelona. And Barcelona at the time had with with the old tarmac they had like these these very little bumps. And then all of a sudden he said, I, "It's it's not good. I'm." I'm I see. I see double. We had to replace him for Japan, and his initial replacement, Andrea de Cesaris. Um, he was so disappointed that we said that Carl is doing the last two events of the season. And when Peter Sauber called him and said, "Listen, um, Andrea, could you come to to Japan?" and then he said, "No way. I'm I'm in Malibu surfing." <laughs> and then um, we we brought JJ back um, for Japan. And JJ did one corner in the race, and then he was out. Um, no, and then Carl did Adelaide. I think it was Adelaide, but um, he had a crash on Saturday, if I remember right. And uh, we had to, I think we take him out. We took him out of the race on Sunday. The crash aside, did you see the same old driver? No, no, he changed quite a bit. Carl was always a, a, one of the most reserved driver. Carl would only talk to the people he knew. And a lot of mechanics, they complained that he's not saying hello in the morning. But he was a very shy person. And after the accident, he opened up completely. Uh, he started talking to everyone. <laughs> so he, he changed, um, but, but for the good. Sauber became the first team to run the high cockpit side. Uh, we, had, we had huge problems because FIA wouldn't, wouldn't let us run initially. They said there's no way. Um, it's not in the regulation. The template wouldn't fit in. And and there was a huge fight. And Peter Saber said, if we're not running them, we, we withdraw from the season. Um, for us, it's a safety a safety thing. And we're 100% sure that with, with, um, with the high cockpit side, um, Carl's accident would, would have been completely different. What does it say about your team that you, you fought for safety in that way? Oh, it was necessary. It, was, it wasn't... Um, this was the time when I think F1 woke up, but, but obviously with two, with two drivers killed like two weeks before um, Carl's accident. And then we had in Barcelona, there was, um, I can't remember, it was Monter, probably yeah, with his legs out of, of the chassis. And so we had, we had like three weekends in a row, which, which were like very special and very dramatic and showed us that there has to be, that the safety side of the car has to be improved. And because of, of the side impact and Carl's helmet um, like being banged to the to the arm coats. And, and at the time, and for 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 um, listener who, who don't know cars at the time, I mean, the, the cockpit wall was at the shoulder. So the helmet was completely free in the air. And and we pushed for it. And, and Pete, for Peter, it was, was very clear we have to do something. And very satisfying for him that it was eventually mandatory. Yeah, introduced, yeah. Now, let's bring it forward to 1995. And... Totally different track now. I'd like to ask you about Red Bull. They came on board as a sponsor in '95. How important was that deal to the team? 
It was it was very important because we've been drinking Red Bull like day and night. <laughs> no, it was it was not only Red Bull, it was um, Petronas as well. And I think Petronas joined in 94, halfway through the season. And then Red Bull and we had, I mean, probably now the two biggest sponsors in, in F1 or amongst the two biggest sponsors. And they both started with with us and it was it was it was a fantastic time um for both of us for Apple and and for Saab first of all with Apple we had the financial background to to do proper motorsport and for Apple it was just like a, a story of success i mean rap Apple was founded in 80 in 86 i think and then in the first the first i don't know how many years Apple was only available in austria and in, in hungary and with um the worldwide uh, sponsorship partnership with us um Apple was noticed and step by step i mean we had for example Apple wasn't available in france was in 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 spain and we had to pay two and a half thousand swiss francs fine at the french border because the french said you're gonna you're gonna smuggle Apple into france and you know things, things like that so it was a, it was a young company it was a very dynamic company um we had very close contact to didi Mateschitz. he came quite often to races I have best memories with, with Didi. You said a moment ago that you were drinking a lot of Red Bull, implying that it was lots of late nights. How different was the sport back then in terms of... I mean, an all-nighter was a, a regular occurrence back then. Times have changed. And, and looking back at the time, we had three cars. We had four mechanics per car. And the, the mechanics, they did the bodywork and they did the refueling and they did everything. The all-nighters were just like on a regular basis. So like every other weekend, you had at least one night working through because you had a problem with the fuel cell. You had to, and you know, changing a fuel cell at the time, it was not an easy thing. And we had quite often, we just went back to the hotel for a shower and, and, and straight to work the other morning. And, and so this is the amount of work and the intensity of days was much, much different than, than today, much, much harder. The team size was much smaller, and but the team spirit was better because, you know, you had to relay on each other. You, you, had, you had one engineer, one race engineer, and you had a guy, now he's calling performance engineer, was the data engineer, and this was, this was the number of engineers we had on, on the car. And then obviously you had an engine engineer, but one engineer for, for both cars. Now you've got literally for every piece on the car, you've got an engineer, um, either at the circuit or at home. But this is what the sport demands. This is how the sport developed. This is where we are now. But but the team spirit at the circuit and at home, because the overall size of the team, 95 was probably 180, um, was different. You knew every person in the company. And now, I, I, for me, it's impossible to know every of, the, of our 520. And by this time, you were team manager, weren't you? Halfway through the season, 94, Peter Sauber, this was in Silverstone. Um, I remember it very well because I was drunk. <laughs> That's the <laughs> only know, reason you no, accepted no, the job, no, right? no, no, it was, it was, you know, when we had the, the, the parties behind the old paddock in Silverstone, there was a grass pit. Peter Sauber, he was looking for me for hours. He clapped me on the shoulder and said, we have a meeting tomorrow. I said, ah. <laughs> and then the next, the next day he said, um, we separated from, from our team manager and our new, you're going to be her replacement, you're going to be our new team manager. I said, no way, no way. I've never booked a hotel room or a flight for myself and he said no um, you have to do it and I said give me 24 hours of the 24 hours I said no way I'm not going to do it I'm a mechanic I'm, I stay as a mechanic and then he said okay then 
the other choice is um, another person we had in the company and said, yeah, but this person doesn't speak English at all. And all the driver's briefing, all the meetings are in English. So how? how? Then said, see, see, it's got to be you. And then I, I agreed. And this was after Silverstone. I was in the end of 94. I was in the morning from 7 o'clock in the morning till 7 o'clock in the evening. I was in the workshop taking care of the cars. And then I went up in, um, to the top floor um, trying to organize the team and and really had had never booked a room for myself and all of a sudden I had to do it for for the team and the lady before she tried to destroy um, a lot of files and a lot of information for some races had had, had no, no clue whether we have hotel rooms booked the number of books where they were so I had to figure out everything then we went to Hockenheim and then um, the Deutsche Post which were given the, the radio license came to me and since came, came says where is the team manager and said this is me and said okay come with us and said um, you have no, not applied for license uh, radio frequency license so you're not allowed to have any frequency running on the weekend and I said but the radio communication no telemetry no just like not nothing, and then we had, you know the shock was big. In the end, we we paid I think fifteen thousand Deutschmark fine for not applying for license. But in the end, we sorted it out. One final thing on Red Bull: was there ever a chance that Sauber could have become Red Bull Racing? I think so. Yes, the whole project followed a bit apart with Kimi and and uh, Enrique Bernoldi because Red Bull was pushing for Enrique. Enrique was in Formula Three thousand. Um, in the year 2000 and Peter Sauber asked me to follow him throughout the whole season and I was sitting on the pit wall um, every race, every Formula 3000 race and I wasn't, I wasn't really sure about his motivation. Why did he want to be a Formula 1 driver? Was it because he wanted to have um, free entrance in the biggest clubs? This was a little bit my feeling. And then, we, and then for whatever reason Peter Sauber gave Kimi a chance to to test and we we still can not recap or explain why he did it because normally you're getting you're being approached by by driver managers um saying that we've got the biggest talent in the next decade on on under on, on the contract so give him a chance and then when when we when we took the decision that we're going for Kim instead of Enrique I think this is this is where where the whole idea of of being rebel racing ended because because this was when 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 um, Didi, who were main shareholder of the company, um, withdrawn from the company and sold his shares to Credit Suisse. Right. It's interesting you mentioned Kimi because um, I'd love to talk about 2001. Your most successful season as an independent team finished fourth in the World Constructors Championship. Who alerted you or Peter Sauber to Kimi Räikkönen? The Robertson, um, Dave and Steve. They went and then Peter, Peter <laughs> about Dave. Peter is always saying this is a carpet dealer. It's not like like you're going and and you you bargaining about about things. No, it was um, and still, if you ask Peter now, there is no explanation why he gave Kimi a chance to test. And Mikasalo helped a little bit as well. Mikasalo, um, we knew in after the summer break that he's going to join Toyota, and he's going to leave. And and he had a chat with Peter Saber as well. So it was the, the Robertsons, and then Kimi tested in September, Mugello. And you were there. How impressive was he? Not very um, from his, his physics. 
Um, but what would you expect from from a driver coming from Formula Renault? So what what we've done with him, we did like three four laps, and then we he needed a break for 15 20 minutes, and Joseph Leber was there, treating him his neck, to give him a chance to to do as many laps as possible and sensible over the two day period, and. And I wasn't. There is a story that Michael came and said, "And who is this driver? And and you have to sign him." I wasn't. I wasn't there when, if the story is right or not, no, or not. I don't know. Um, Peter had a chat with Michael, um, but he he was he was um, he was up to speed from beginning. No, he was was comparable with with Dini's. He was exceptional and. His comments, he didn't talk a lot. Then, uh, no, his his comments was, I, "I can do better. I can do better." No, he was he was impressive, and and the, and the way he he looked at you, and you had the feeling that he he if you give him a chance, he's taking it, and and he makes the best out of it. Sensational bit of passing there by Kimi Raikkonen, the thin. He's only 21 years old. There he is in the Sauber. Sauber, a great job with their drivers in the points, fourth in the constructors' championship. So, Bayer, how much of a surprise was fourth and sixth in Melbourne? The whole the whole year was a surprise, and the whole year was was um, evolved in, in something completely unexpected. We had we had a lot of good races. Um, the car was excellent, and then you had two drivers who were pushing each other. I mean, Nick a little bit upset that he didn't get the McLaren drive the year before he was with um, Prost, and before he was um, for McLaren in, in Formula Three thousand. Um, no, no, but they were pushing each other, and we had a very good time together. Did you regret letting Kimi go at the end of the year? Oh, we 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 didn't let him go. We had to let him go. <laughs> was, I think if you ask Kimi, there was no option. Um, no, he he made he made it very clear. We had a bulletproofed three-year contract with him, and but he made it very clear that he's rather going to stop than than carry on. He's, he's either he's going to join McLaren or he's going to stop. He made it very clear. And there was a certain financial incentive as well. There was for, for Peter. With, with the with the financial. I don't know um, how much it was, but with the financial incentive, we started building our wind tunnel, which is still operating today. It's it's still one of the state of the art. Time to talk more about drivers. We'll get on to Felipe Massa and Charles Leclerc shortly, and there's more to come about Kimi Raikkonen. But I asked Bayat about the other two world champions he's worked with. Jacques Villeneuve was the second, and Bayat's take on him might surprise you. The third champ is Sebastian Vettel, who drove the BMW Sauber in tests, in practice sessions at the end of 2006, and in his Grand Prix debut in 2007. Bayat was there for those early tests, and he remembers Seb struggling at first. When we tested him in, I think it was Jerez, the first time I was sitting in our car. Before he had a test with Williams, he was a slowy, so meaning that um, he he needed quite a bit of time to adopt to um, changes, um, track changes, grip changes. Um, we had, when he was a little bit damp and dried out, um, he was a very slow learner. And let's say the first couple of tests, I wasn't so impressed about him. But then... He opened, I don't know what he opened, but anyway, and, and we gave him uh, the first P1 session in Istanbul and he put it on with the quickest time. Of course, it was low fuel level and, and the, the super or the extreme soft or whatever we had, um, but still you had to do it. You had you had to set the time and he, he developed himself 
during the practice session, during all test sessions, massively. Again, if you look at his very first, his, his complete first complete season, 2008. I mean, there is a joke. Um, we had a, almost a running gag that um, if there was a start accident, uh, Sebastian was was always nearby, so he was he was involved quite quite a bit. And then again, when after he won uh, Monza, the world has changed for him. The level of confidence you you get with with a race win, I think, must be extreme. Did you see similarities between Sebastian and a young Michael Schumacher in terms of work ethic, how they approached things? Sebastian is, is, was, was a kid by then. Michael was 20 when he joined Sauber. Sebastian as well, but Michael was much more mature in his age than, than Sebastian was. Sebastian was really like, like a little kid. No, I didn't think of similarities of the, of the two of them. And the third world champion that's raced for Sauber, Jacques Villeneuve. Yep. 2005, he did the whole season, half of 2-6. The results didn't stand out, but what impressed you about him? First of all, that we, could, that we were able to sign a world champion. <laughs> I mean, this was this was a thing at the time. This was a thing that Sauber is having a world champion on board. Then what I remember is the fuss around him. So his manager, his physio, uh, they would say he needs he needs like that much space in a driver room. He needs a, a, a couch. He needs this and that and that. And I told them we're not building a team around the driver. The driver has to accept actually what what he gets. And in Sauber, all the time the driver has all been treated um, the same. And so when when um, Felipe Massa, when he gets a driver room which is like three three by three meters, Shock will get the same. He will not get the three by six meter. And the fuss um, which his manager made around when he remember he came to Melbourne and said Shock will never accept it. He will never accept such a, such such a small driver room. And I said, but this is what he gets. Full stop. And he was absolutely no problem. He was easy to deal with. All the rumors about him being completely difficult, the prima ballerina was absolutely not true. To work with him, it was, it was great fun. We had a good time. We still have a good time together. Who was quicker out of him and Felipe Massa? Um, in the end, it was Felipe. It was Felipe. Felipe, young, upcoming. We had some problems with Felipe as well because we kicked him out of the two, uh, 2002. And then he came back in 2004 because 2002 was a disaster. He was... He was a kid, not willing to learn, to take advices on board. Um, he left, he had to leave Sauber. 2003, he had a, a season with Ferrari um, alongside Michael, testing a lot. Then when, when he came back, he was, he was a, di a different person, a different driver, and he was quick. Felipe was quick and consistent. And, and Jacques, which was a little bit bizarre for me, he needed motivation, he needed someone to push him through a, through a race, a race engineer, Telling him you have to, you have to push more. You have to break deeper into one. You have to. You, you still do coaching these days, but the amount of coaching we we did with Jock was was um, was very special. That's very interesting, isn't it? Now you've worked with so many drivers in your Sauber career, and I'm including sports cars. Difficult question coming now: Who was the fastest? Who has been the fastest? Yeah, it was Kimi. From 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 a talent point of view, from pure talent point of view, it's definitely Kimi. And then now every, everyone is saying, or a lot of people is saying, that if he would have taken it more serious, um, he could have achieved more world championship title. But um, I think 
what happened to him in 2003 and 2000, I think it was 2003 and 2005, when he lost out by one point. And this were, he had too many DNFs, um, technical problem on the car. He should, he should be a three-time world champion. Definitely. So from, from a pure talent, this is Kimi. Had Kimi lost any of his speed from 2001 to when he came back to the team in 2019? Um, I, th I, think, I think what he lost is his qualifying speed because he was one of the quickest qualifiers when he was young. And now <laughs> he would probably disagree with me. I, th I think it's, it's, it's a matter of age. In the age of 42, I think prob probably the quarters are arriving quicker than, than in the age of 20. Um, no, he lost. He lost a little bit on on his qualifying performance. In the race, he was still excellent. I mean, you you don't talk to Kimi during the race. He does everything on his own. So when you have engineers talking in the background, uh, engine settings, and uh, okay, let's 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 tell him he should go to engine two, and then oh, he just did it by himself. So he is one of the most for me, one of the most clever racing drivers. He can read races. He knows exactly when, when he has to defend, when he has to push, when it's better to let someone someone overtake because he's on a different strategy. He, he, he reads. He wants to... The information Kimi wants to have during a race is what's going around him, what he doesn't see. And then he can read races. There's one other driver I'd like to ask you about. Charles Leclerc, 2018. Comparisons between him and a young Vettel, a young Schumacher? Very talented. He needed a little bit longer than expected. I think the first point he scored here in Baku, if I'm not mistaken. Until till that race, he he struggled um, because the the driving the driving style needed for a Formula One car was a little bit different than than the, the F2. All of us we expected for him to adopt a little bit quicker. I, I think he expected it from himself as well. Um, but but in the end, bottom line, um, probably the the most complete driver I've worked with in terms of natural talent in terms of um, intelligence, race intelligence, and then and then just like he's so focused and he's going to be a world champion. Can I ask you now about a case of what might have been? And I'm talking about the BMW era. They bought the team in 2005. Surely the team could have become world champion as a BMW-owned enterprise. I think this was clearly clearly the goal. And it went, we, we were heading in the right direction, um, especially 2008. Although although preseason test wasn't as bad as this year, but it was bad as well. And, and we, we had kind of a B version uh, at the first race. And the amount of the manpower and, and the, the financial investment, which we had at the time, was, was just like excellent. So you were one of the top teams. Unfortunately, we, we, we made like a concept mistake um, with the curse in 2009. I think we've been the only team with a, a air-cooled system instead of a fluid-cooled. And we could run 50% um, throughout the whole season on, on the electric engine, not more because it was overheating all the time. And so the, the we had to, this was, it was a terrible season, 2009, after 2008. But I'm pretty sure that if BMW would have stayed on board, um, we would have been world champion sooner or later, definitely. Now, even today, Robert Kubitzer will tell you that he could have won the world championship in 2008. He won the team's only race actually so far in Montreal. And he said that was the moment to kick on and win that world championship. But the management said otherwise. No, I, I, th I think the the focus was probably was too early um, put on, on 2009 with, with the new engine formula, with, with the new electric part. Probably he was right um, that we, we, should have, we should have invested more um, towards the end of the season in 
in the in in 2018 in the in the current year. But on the other hand, and now Robert would disagree as well. The win actually was was Nick's win in in Montreal. Nick had to let Robert go um, because we were on different strategy, fuel strategy. But if Nick um, would have blocked Robert a couple of laps, I think Nick could have won the race. So it was a team team decision. Well, I'm looking forward to your next meeting with Robert Kubitz. <laughs> <laughs> no, oh, uh, you know, he knows but, me. He knows but Bayat, I must say, though, it was wonderful to see Robert win that race after his horrific accident at the same track the Abs previous year. Absolutely, it was. It was... Um, <laughs> it's always great. It's always I don't know. It's always great to win a, a Formula One race because we only won um, one race. Um, it was a very exceptional weekend, especially because it was a one-two, and with Robert we measured the high, the highest heart rate ever in a Formula One driver. It was above 200, but this was when he stepped on on the top podium, not not driving when he was on on the on the top of the podium. It was really, it was really good. I had to organize a party in the evening, a, sh a short, short notice party. I had to find a restaurant for 100 people, and no, it was, it was very good. Happy days. Less happy days, of course, is when BMW pulled out at the end of 2009. They weren't the only ones to pull out that year, of course. But how much warning did you get? No, <laughs> zero, zero. But, but not even Mario Tyson was informed. It was in June or July, I think, when they announced it. But Peter Saber and Mario Tyson, Mario Tyson was informed the day before the announcement. The guy who was who was behind the F1 pro project was Dr. Panke, the CEO. And then he was the CEO. He, he retired. And then it was Mr. Reithover. And we had another financial crisis. F1 wasn't so popular. We had other... Um, we had other incidents with the president of the FIA and things. I think Reithofer, Dr. Reithofer was more like interested in horses and golf. And so I think they shifted the focus. But, but I cannot tell for sure, but th there was zero warning. Then we had the difficult time because we had a company interested. Then when it turned out that it's not real, then we had another problem. We didn't get a license from the FIA because the license was given to US Grand Prix. And FIA, they assessed the US Grand Prix company and they came back and said it's legit and they have the personnel and they have the machineries and they have everything. But um, in the end, nothing was there, <laughs> um, just a little bit. And, and we had to fight for, first of all, to, to keep the company alive. Peter Sauber bought the company back. How close did you come to going under? Oh, it was very close, it was, was extremely close. Without Peter stepping in and buying shares back, at the time when, when the company was sold to BMW, 67% of the shares were Credit Suisse, 33% were with Peter. And the deal was that Credit Suisse um, keeps on stickers, logos on the car, and then step over, over, the, over the four years, they, they, they turn over the shares to, to BMW. So in the end, the bluntly saying that Peter Sauber, with the 33%, the money, the money, he, the revenue he's got from the 33%, with the 33%, he had to buy 100% of the company back. It wasn't cheap because, uh, mean, meanwhile, BMW invested a lot in the facilities. We, we almost doubled the, the working space in the time. And it was, it was extremely difficult. First of all, to, to convince BMW for a deal. But there I wasn't, was not involved at all. So this was Peter and Monisha. And then to get the license from the FA. And and I think till January we didn't have a license. So even even though the, the the company was kind of safe, we couldn't compete because there was no license. And then this was this was one of the hardest time um, for Peter, and for me as well. We had to let go 250 people, 
We had to re we had almost cut the size of the company in half, and this was this was hard because you had you know mechanics which were there for years and years and years, and you know their families and and you have to tell them sorry, there is no space for you anymore. How much help was Bernie Eccleston through? All this? I don't know. Um, I was not involved in that. No, it was it was the first year when, if you look at the card, 2010, um, there was Bridgestone. I think pretty much the only sticker on the on on the car at the time because we had to do it contractually. But there were it was it was a plain a plain car, no logos. So someone ha must have helped. Do you think Bernie liked Sauber full stop? Do you think he liked the fact that there was a Swiss team in Formula One? Uh, at the beginning, I'm pretty sure that he, he didn't think that we're going to survive for for a long for a long time. And you know, at the t in the 90s, you had so many Formula One team coming and going. Um, Andrea Moda, um, then later Pacific, and um, but in the end, I'm sure that he appreciated Peter um, on a personal level, and that we achieved what what we have achieved. If you were to map out the location of current Formula One factories, you'd notice a trend. Seven of the ten are in the UK. Motorsport Valley is where you'll find Red Bull, Mercedes, Aston Martin, McLaren, Williams, even French team Alpine and US-owned Haas are there. Two teams are in Italy, Ferrari and Alfa Tauri, and then you have one, based all on its own, in Switzerland. Hinville is home to about 12,000 people and the Sauber F1 factory. It's now the base for Alfa Romeo. Hundreds of snow-covered mountains and hundreds of miles separate the team from the rest of the F1 world. Bayat says the team's unique location is sometimes challenging and not just because of the long journeys to racetracks. Prize money is paid in US dollars. Let's say in the 90s, when you get 30 million US dollars, it was 45 million Swiss francs. And then the exchange rate changed completely. And now if you if you get 50 million dollars you got you got less than 45 million. So this was this was one of the points which made it very difficult to do motorsport out of Switzerland and then salary level are extremely high in Switzerland. So you have to manage your money in a different way. Um it was not always easy to be attractive for um English engineers. But then Again, if you have, if you look, we have so many engineers, um, UK citizens, which are working for us for 20 years, 20, 15 years. But you know what they describe Sauber as? They describe it as a trap. <laughs> I've talked to the guy. They say you come to Switzerland and you never leave. Yeah, because yeah. Because it's such a no, beautiful you have, place you have, to you live. You have two, you have two, um, two types. Either, either you leave quite soon because you, you Swiss people are, are very reserved you're not just like invite people to your house which you don't really know so it's very reserved and either you you're if you're not getting connected especially if you if you're moving to switzerland with your family with your children children normally they don't have problem to get connected but if a wife doesn't get connected if she doesn't find anyone then you have the two groups so one group is leaving within a year or two because they don't like it and but most most of the guys the english guys join who join Sauber, they're still with us the it's a trap. It's a trap. <laughs> <laughs> because, because the fondue is so good. Of course, Peter Sauber, uh, he, he buys the shares back, but then he does eventually sell to Longbow Finance uh, in 2017. Do you think it was a wrench for him to sell? How much does he miss it? He had to sell, quite simple. 
you had to sell. We had we had some very dark years in terms of financial situation. The biggest problem was changing from a V8 to a V6. The V8 was probably three times cheaper in leasing fees than, than the V6. And this was like, if, if we're talking about, about 12, 13 million a year difference. And as a small team, as a private team, it was, it was just impossible to recover it with, with sponsors. And this is when, when our huge, the bigger problem started. Leasing fee for the engine, for the gearbox was so extraorbitant. What this highlights is just how many different areas you are having to deal with on a daily basis, Ben. Yeah, probably more than than other of my colleagues because. The, but this is normally if you grow up in a, in a in a company, um, probably you have more jobs than than other people. I'm taking care of the infrastructure, garage infrastructure of trucks, of hospitality, of catering, uh, of, of historical cars, the driver academy, and last but least a little bit of sporting regulations. Just the sporting regulations. I know you had a very close relationship with Charlie Whiting at the FIA, didn't you? If you didn't have a good relationship with Charlie, it was definitely on you and not on Charlie. No, Charlie was... Uh, and the way the rules are written today is, is, is me. It's is, is my regulation, basically. Not, not the wording, but the composition of the articles. And I went to Charlie, I think it was 2013, and said, Charlie, the whole structure doesn't make sense. We jump from, from race start to tire test to driver's briefing and we should arrange it in, in, in a more logical order. And then he said, well, if you want to do it, go ahead. And I said, here it is. <laughs> and then he went through it and then he said, this is, this, is, well, this is a fine piece of work and congratulations. And then we adopted it. Why have you remained true to Sauber all of these years? Because I'm sure there would have been offers to join other teams. Yeah, I had, I had um, a few offers, but the timing was, was never right. In 91, I had a car accident in, in Japan. I have no idea what happened because I was I was in coma for for quite a while. Anyway, I was sentenced to be guilty, and I was sentenced to um, pay the the family a compensation, which was complete. And I was a mechanic, which was completely out of of my reach. And I thought, if if I'm gonna pay a million compensation, um, then you know my my, li my life is basically done. Anyway, Peter Sauber and Mercedes Benz helped a lot. I, I, I had um, eight weeks house arrest in Kumamoto. And so Peter Sauber helped me, and then he gave me the chance, um, although I didn't want to, to, to do it, um, to, to develop myself as, as a team manager. And when, when the offers came from other teams, um, it was always a wrong moment. The first real offer came when BMW took over. Probably I can say, did, did he call me immediately? Motorsheets. And I said, I, want, I want, to, want you to work for me. And I would never dare to, to ask Peter to let you go. But now it's Peter, is gone. It's now it's BMW, come, come to me. And then it took me three months to, to decide, actually. No, and, and Peter was, Peter said, Bert, Bert, we need you here for the transition because without you, um, it's not going to work. And, um, so this was, this was the first moment. And then later with the financial difficulties we had, I always thought it would not be right to just run away. And they had some good offers, but it, it was never the right timing. And is there an element now that you've been with the team so long, you can't see yourself anywhere else now? No, I wouldn't say that. No, never say never. At the moment, I'm still happy, um, especially now with, with how, how the season goes. Of course, it is not that funny to work um, if you turn up on, on, on a race weekend and you say, if, if we're very lucky this weekend, we, we score a point. So the situation, the sporting side has changed completely and this helps 
to motivate myself. And but this helps the whole team. And this is a different mood in in the garage than than we had the last two years because the last two years were really difficult in terms of on the sporting side. Um, but I would not say never. But the right offer would have to come, probably the next one or two years, because then then it's definitely too late to change. Well, it'll be interesting to see what happens, Bayer. But when you look back at your time at Sauber so far, which do you think has been the happiest era for you? Group C. Several elements. First of all, we've been a very, very small team and we've been working day and night. And the the friendship in in the whole team and it was it was not like colleagues, they were really friends. We you know, stupid as we were that, that if if we had a, a free weekend, a free evening in a week, we went went for dinner together. No, it was it was it was a bunch of crazy young people, and what we've done at the time. I mean, we, you know, we we welded wishbones ourselves, so we 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 had like two two half pieces, and we had to weld it. We we, we built a car, except the engine and the gearbox. The car was built by a bunch of people, and this uh, was no carbon um, cockpit. It was aluminum, um, riveted, bolted, whatever, glued. Uh, it was it was exceptional. And then obviously winning Le Mans '89. Um, for me, there is nothing bigger in fo- in, in motorsports probably because it's a long it's a long race, and it's not only 24 hours. It's it's, it's you start on on Saturday early morning, so it's more like 36 hours in total. And you hardly sleep the whole week. And then two times world champion in sports car. And these were, yeah, if you win races, it's always good. I love the sport. I love still um, teamwork. If you, so, Sometimes you have a crash on a car and, and you look at it and you say, it's impossible. It, you cannot fix it till in, in the next two hours to, to, start, to start P2 or, or, um, or qualifying. And then if you if you manage your team right and and you reallocate probably mechanics from one car to the, to the, to the other to help each other out in the end it's teamwork and this is what's still extremely fascinating. Bayat is an extraordinary man who's had an extraordinary career in Formula One. So much history wrapped up in one person, and yet still so current and so passionate about the sport. Bayat, many thanks for your time. It was wonderful to debrief you on your career so far, and I'm sure you have many more races to come. Here's to the next 500. As ever, please send in your thoughts and stories about Bayat. Have you worked with him at Sauber? Can you relate to any of the stories he's mentioned in our conversation? Let me know, and I'll read out some of your messages at the end of our next show. Which, of course, brings me on to what you sent in about Mike Crack after last week. Even though Aston Martin is having a hard time on track, there's still a lot of love out there for the team. Let's start with this from Ete Keneal. What a great interview with Mike Crack. I've always believed Vettel's work ethic has been on a great level, raising his talent even further. And to hear Mike speak about my favourite driver, Sebastian, made me very happy. Vettel will be very missed on track and around the paddock with his inspirational actions, personality and great car control. When everything suits him, he is a beast on track. I hope one day I will meet this great driver in person. Well, Seb is all of those things you describe, Ete, and Mike is a brilliant boss who no doubt will lead Aston Martin to great things with or without Seb. 
Next, let's hear this from LD Bikeri. Guys, I believe the 2024 Aston Martin will be fighting for the World Championship. Wow, LD, that's a big shout. And sooner than even the team expects to be doing that. Mike Crack will be pleased that you think this, though. Great stuff. And finally, let's give the floor to William Smith. I never knew that Mike and Andreas Seidel had worked so closely together in the past. BMW have such amazing pedigree in Formula One, and to think that they trained up so many senior people in the sport is extraordinary. Great insights from Mike. Thank you. Well, thanks for the note, William. And uh, I loved Mike's story about him and Andreas meeting up at the back of the Bahrain grid earlier this year and discussing how far they'd come in their careers and how well their teams were doing. Well, not doing at the time, but certainly are going to be doing in the future. Well, we'll leave it there for this week and for a couple more weeks because F1 Beyond the Grid is taking a two-week summer break. We'll be back on Wednesday, the 24th of August, just before the Belgian Grand Prix with another great guest from the world of Formula One. Until then, have a great summer and thanks for listening. F1 Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 and Audio Boom Studios. Until next time, keep it flat out. <laughs>